Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Story Conversations. I'm Susan Griffin, and with me is my co-producer and partner in all things story-related, <laughs> Simon Arrowsmith. Hello. Hey, Simon. Hi, everyone. Um, well, we're really excited today. Our guest is actually a dear friend of mine. Um, his name is Will Nolan. He's... In his career, he's been a writer. He's been a communications director at a nonprofit. He's been an advocate for various um, causes and, and people. He's an entertainer. He's a comedian. And story has always been part of the toolkit he's used throughout his career. So without further ado... So, Will, welcome to Story Conversations. We'd love to start off by you telling us your origin story. So, you know, where did it all start? I understand you studied English and theatre. Um, where did your love of story start from? So, um, and thank you so much for having me. I, I grew up in the South, um, in Atlanta, and um, I think just deeply rooted in Southern culture, at least in the Southern culture I was raised in was this, um, not just a love of storytelling, but the necessity of storytelling where it's just, it's how you entertain. It's how you educate. It's how you punish. Um, and, and using, using stories, lived experiences, shared experiences to, um, to kind of help raise, raise your kids, whether it was a relative, a close family friend, we had an older woman who was sort of our, our nanny for lack of a better, a a better description, um, that we weren't really of the means to have a nanny, but she, you know, helped raise us when we were little. And my mom was first going back to work before, before we became latchkey kids. Hmm. Um, (laughs) and, and so that was, that was where like, there was nothing more entertaining to me growing up from a little age, even as a surly teen, than sitting around a table at a meal and just having people tell stories, even the same stories over and over again, a lot of which have gotten me um, uh, work in my adult life, <laughs> retelling <laughs> some of those same stories. Um, and, and so I think it's just, I think it's one of those things that, uh, and you know, I've lived in the Northeast now longer than I've lived, uh, lived in the South. And I think it's the same, I think it's the same thing, you know, people just, there are stories that unite families, whether it's, uh, your biological family or your chosen family. And those, the retelling of those, you know, passes down from generation to generation. I have my own surly teenager now, and he's a big fan of all the same stories that, that, um, you know, my mom, my, my, Mm. my parents, my siblings, uh, you know, we all pass on. So the combination of that and then being a kid in the seventies and eighties, who, like I said, was a latchkey kid and was being raised by television. I, the shows that I grew up on were all um, story driven. Were all all had you know mm. strong characters. I loved sketch comedy because of Carol Burnett, and I think what made Carol Burnett successful was that all of her skits had were character driven mm. and had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And eventually, I was raised Catholic, but not a huge fan of the Catholic Church. Um, 
and was introduced to this Methodist uh, theater group when I was in high school and all my friends were in it. And so that got me into theater, which of course was all about um, storytelling and, Mm -hmm. and I love the proverbial misspent youth. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. We, but also what, because it was a church theater group, it wasn't just, you know, Neil Simon and Music Man, it was also liturgical dramas. And so looking to, um, you know, that book Jesus wrote for, for scripts in there too, um, which was, which was, you know, some of it was embarrassing and thank God there wasn't, uh, cell phones back then, but it was, um, (laughs) it was a great way of, of, you know, telling stories and Saturday night live was like, Mm. again, this, this, a combination of storytelling and also tapping into, uh, current events that was really impactful. So through studying English and theater at college, was your goal writing and performing or was it teaching or? Yeah. So my goal was in, I think it was, um, what was the year that I think it was 1989, Wendy Wasserstein won the Tony for the Heidi Chronicles. And I didn't know the play. Um, I didn't really know a whole lot about her, but I saw her acceptance speech on the Tonys and all of these things sort of clicked. I was like, I want to write, I want to write the things that are performed in front of people live, not TV, which had raised me, or movies, but there was something about theater that really clicked. And I went to college. Um, the school I went to, Wake Forest, has a great theater program. It's not necessarily known for its theater program, but I sort of was, that was not even my minor at the beginning. It was more of just like something I, I liked the people there, and it was sort of a an extracurricular that I spent so much time there, it ended up becoming... Um, my minor with a English major and it's uh again just kept building these these tools that uh helped emphasize the importance of of theater and storytelling to um to connect with people mm-hmm. i also one of my college professors um who was a professor professor emeritus um at wake forest was my angelou and I had the privilege of taking one of her classes wow. where like the first day of class, we were sitting around and she's just telling her life story, which was essentially her re retelling, you know, why I know why the cage bird sings to us in a setting, not a whole lot bigger than the three of us sitting together right oh, now. Wow. I mean, it was this, it, it was this crazy, amazing experience. And so it wasn't just, it wasn't just theater then it became there's such an intimacy i think whether it's one-on-one or between one person and, and an audience of people um and and hearing her tell you know her her specific story the specificity the details of her storytelling um really left a, a mark on me whether it was through poetry or through her her um her memoir writing. Hmm. I think it's so, I think it's really interesting that you talk about you know, and I'm, I mean, we're going to come on to this uh, later on in our discussion. But this this idea that a single person telling a story is so captivating. So often we think of theatre as this big, 
you know, production with many, many parts and many, many people, but actually it's just a body in a space holding space, which is quite captivating. Yeah, there's someone famous in theater, and I don't even know enough names to say the wrong name, <laughs> but, but the quote is something along the lines of one person in front of another person telling a story is theater. Like that's really all it takes, mm, yeah. um, you know, that, that sort of simple thing. So that's what, and I think it's interesting because in my, my theater trajectory, um, I sort of lived this double life. The, the theater part of it has become more of a, a solo driven passion versus um you know big splashy musicals or something like that not that there's anything wrong with big splashy musicals just, nope and just if so i could sing i would do them <laughs> but can you dance nope okay. if, I, if i if i had even two threats you're a dedicated single threat and you are standing <laughs> and i don't it. even know that i'm one threat so <laughs> Well, so as a as a writer and a creator of stories, um, you know, if I look at um, your theater trajectory as well as the your your day job trajectory, if I can call it that, uh, there's a, a thread that has had to do with advocacy in in a lot of what you've done. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about how narrative and storytelling has framed the way you've approached advocacy. Yeah, so, and and it's interesting because it's been in my, my much later adult years, professional years, that I've had to redefine advocacy for myself because to me, advocacy meant um, going to Washington, D.C., with either a petition or a, you know, a sign and like advocating like that was, that was advocacy. Um, and, and one of the things that I've done in my professional career is also help to re-educate and redefine the, the term for, um, for different audiences that I was, I was working with. But I think that I, I've always been, a shy maybe introvert is more appropriate person just in general I've never been someone who's wanted to rock the boat with um my beliefs whether they're political religious uh anything any of the controversial subjects and what I've found through through writing through performing um through storytelling is a way to express myself that doesn't feel like I, I don't have that that worry that I think people who are naturally sort of introverts do that I'm going to stumble over the words or I'm going to misspeak or I'm going to, you know, these days say something <laughs> that would lead to being canceled. Mm. It's 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 a thoughtful sort of uh, uh, precise um, way to lay out lay out what I'm thinking. So that's been that's been one way that I've been able to, I think, uh, to your question, Susan, use advocacy, use my voice to, to advocate for others or for, for beliefs that I have. And I've, I think because I, I was sort of grown, grown, 
grew up in this this sort of mutt of religions, raised Catholic. I had a lot of exposure to the Protestant church. I went through this period in high school with my closest friends. We all discovered Shirley MacLaine and, um, <laughs> you know. The Church of Shirley MacLaine. The Church of Shirley MacLaine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we read a lot of Alice Walker's books that all dealt with reincarnation and New Age was, you know, like Inya was big and crystals and like, <laughs> All of this stuff, it was like super trendy then. But what, what came from it was just this, this sort of personal spirituality where I knew that anything that I wanted to do, I, I wanted to in some way, not necessarily in a huge way, but try to make the world a better place, um, knowing that I wanted to have my own family. Um, and making the world a better place, I think, starts in your own little postage, mm. postage stamp of the world. Not It doesn't have to be on a broad scale. And to be kind, or, or at least aim to be kind in everything that I, I do. Um, and that's been, that's been something that, you know, I've, I've taken into my professional day job as well. That I, it, it's what led me to the nonprofit world. Um, and, and f to the for-profit world that I work in right now, it's this idea that, you know, you can, if you can help change hearts and minds and the way that people behave, um, even, even just at a micro level, I think it can have a ripple effect. At least I hope it can have a ripple effect because we know that the, the opposite of that does. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if there's a way to combat that, then that's something that, you know, I've been passionate about. So, so yeah, so hopefully that kind of answers like weaves weaves it yeah and, and together right. I, I guess you know you talk about you, you treat advocacy as a personal responsibility or as a, starts from a place of personal responsibility but you have done um in your career work jobs uh, that have sort of lent themselves to advocacy i'm thinking about your time uh, with wilderness media and mtv and the radio show tell us a little bit about that because that's quite fascinating yeah, so all I knew is that, you know, TV, entertainment, I'm a pop culture junkie, and um, I had an opportunity. Uh, my husband and I lived in New York, moved to L.A. for about 30 minutes, and <laughs> we're coming back to New York, and this opportunity at MTV opened up for um, to work with Logo, which is their LGBTQ plus network that was just launching at the time. So this was like... 2004 2005 and um i was hired to to be the assistant to the head of the network right at the launch and it was really exciting and i guess as typical in entertainment um in the business part of show business uh once the network was launching his his contract with mtv sort of shifted his role was shifting and i i was at this crossroads where i could stick with logo which was interesting, or I could stay with, with him, which is Wilderness Media, and and continue to. Um, he was still under contract with MTV, so there was essentially this this toolkit for us to this this uh, toy box for us to play with of um, to create LGBTQ entertainment assets. So he partnered with. Um, uh, an existing magazine that was the audience was geared towards gay men. 
um, created an online social network. This was just as Facebook and, and LinkedIn and all of these things were taking off. That was for um, gay and lesbian professionals, but also a way to connect socially. We managed a drag queen. And then there was this radio show that was for uh, the LGBTQ audience that was on syndicate. It was a syndicated radio show that was on two hours a week across the country. And one of my jobs was to cold call radio stations and pitch this to them to try to get them to air the show. And this is, you know, when you look back, I mean, so much has happened in the queer community in mm-hmm. such a short time in the U.S. This was like Will and Grace was on, but things were, you know, it was we didn't have marriage we didn't have the visibility even that that we have obviously today and so it was a bit of a risk for these stations to to carry the show um but but they did and they took the gamble and it ran for a couple of years and there were three hosts two gay guys and a lesbian who were fantastic and the show had this ripple effect where we were getting we were getting this incredible response from kids in square states in the middle of the country who were stumbling across on their radio on it because this was played on Sunday nights like ten o'clock at night you know like who's listening to the radio and these kids were finding the show and hearing the host talk about their just everyday life had such this incredible impact. I mean, we also had celebrity guests and as the lone man on the totem pole, you know, my job was to stare at a phone and wait for it to blink for Beyonce to call in for an interview. <laughs> so it was really glamorous stuff. But these emails and things that we were getting, were, it was so impactful. And so that was when I I knew for my next step, I wanted to do something in the nonprofit world where I was having that sort of direct impact, that direct interaction mm-hmm. with, with people who were being affected by um, the communications I was helping to put out, whether I was doing it directly or, or behind the scenes as so, the so case talk with to the us, radio show. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that um, experience. What was the nonprofit? And I, I understand that it was um, supporting a disease that, might not have affected huge numbers of the the population, but those people who it did affect it were they and their families were profoundly impacted. So storytelling was for brand awareness, for fundraising. For I mean, as you said, changing hearts and minds. But it it was for all of that. that. Yeah. So I I led the communications for a small rare disease nonprofit called Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy for 13 years. And when I started with the organization, it was a pretty small, a pretty small group of people. It's still a a founder led organization, Um, incredibly charismatic woman who um, lost two two of her sons to this disease. And, um, has made it her her life mission to find to find a cure and 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 an end to this disease, and so the minute I I interviewed and and found out more about the physician, I just knew I wanted to be part of this really passionate team, and I think that's what nonprofits are is is you know the nonprofits that work the best I think are the ones that are um, a group of passionate people who are who are who are striving towards one mission, and at the time they were. 
they were outsourcing a lot of their different communications and marketing and things like that. And bringing me on board was a, a way to bring it all inside. And one of, and this was just at, again, uh, Facebook was, had moved over into, you know, had gone beyond college kids. Mm-hmm. And now you had adults, older adults who were, who were getting on it and starting to connect that way. And we, we sort of adopted it as one of the first rare diseases to really use the platform as a way to help people connect and to help push information out to our families because having a great website with lots of information and lots of links and reports and all that stuff is great. But I think with the advent of social media, the, you know, everybody's carrying a computer in their pockets now with, with, um, cell phones, mobile devices, it's people aren't taking the time to really scour a website necessarily in the same way that they were. And especially when you're talking about a rare disease that's affecting children, young, you know, kids are being diagnosed hopefully at a young age so that treatments can begin. But, but these are really, really busy parents. And so the challenge became really quickly, how can we get them sometimes critical, you know, vital information quickly, or sometimes just information that, you know, they need to know in a way that's going to reach them where they're going for information, where they already are. And so you have a, you have a tool like Facebook or Twitter, um, even Instagram. And, you know, I think the, the, the first thing you think of is like, oh, there's there's a news story or there's a, a pharmaceutical company has put out a press release about their drug. We'll share the we'll share the link and see what happens. And what we found was when we put context around what we shared, when we spoke to who we knew our audience was, then the the power of that of that post was so much more. Um, so much more amplified and so much more successful for us and and for the families we were trying to reach. And so in in our evolution of communications, we started to to dive even further and realized, you know, and I think this is true for most for most nonprofits and and for most businesses. you have you can you can sort of zero in on your audience. But there's this fear of getting too specific. You you have all these different stakeholders and you want to try to speak to everybody. Where we found our, our most success was by zooming in on our most important audience, which for a rare disease was the parents of the kids who were being affected, who had been diagnosed. When we spoke to them, all of the other stakeholders were going to show up and, and listen to the information uh, or read the information and follow it because they were they were coming to us for information but these parents when we when we spoke specifically to them and when i say we got specific it was like our audience was you know a mom of of probably more than one kid she may not be working she has a partner who is working full time she doesn't have medical background or a scientific background and one of her kids has been diagnosed with this form of muscular dystrophy. So how do we get information to her so that when she's on her phone in line at Target, she can look down and say, like, 
this is great news, this is not great news, or this doesn't affect me in about five seconds, you know? And so when we got that sort of specificity and knew who we were talking to, it made our communication so much more impactful, I think. Um, And like I said, our other stakeholders, which are researchers, physicians, care providers, other caregivers in the family, you know, siblings, um, and then way down at the bottom, investors and, and, you know, the pharmaceutical companies and stuff who were just kind of watching what's happening in the community, they were all showing up still to to get the information. Um, But what we were doing was we were really capturing, grabbing um, our most important audience and and knew that we were successfully speaking to them. Telling the story about why it mattered. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I just think that you can underestimate the importance of that specificity of being specific, (laughs) talking to a specific audience. I can't speak today, apparently. Um, Yeah, I don't think you can underestimate it. I think a, a lot of the people that Susan and I deal with in terms of clients I think they are so tempted to go generic and say, I want to speak to all these people. But if you can't, if you speak to all, if you try and speak to all those people, you're speaking to no one, speak to one person and and other people will gravitate towards that message. Yeah, exactly. And the other, the other point I was just going to hit on to your original question, Susan, in terms of storytelling was we also understood. And again, social media for all of its, as evil as it is, the, the good sides of it, um, you know, it's a great way to listen hmm. because it helped us. It helped us um, hear what are what the priorities of our stakeholders. Again, in this case, you know, what is that mom? What is her partner? Um, what are their What are their priorities? And how can we take their priorities? One, as an advocacy organization, I think you you should be reflecting what the priorities are of your of your key audience. But also, how can we help turn that into strategic priorities for the organization? How can we help take that information and share it with other partners like pharmaceutical companies who are developing trials and those kinds of things? So it was, it, I think good communications and, and good storytelling is as much about listening. And that goes for, you know, in the business to business sort of communications that we're talking about. But also it's what, you know, I started to I started these two parallel lives that I leave live between the, the performing and the professional. Um, that's also where my best material is listening to the world around mm-hmm. me and being open mm-hmm. to it. My husband, who's also a writer, we we often will have these little writing dates where we go to like a noisy cafe because just snippets of conversation and just being around energy and life and things like that help, I think help sort of motivate you and, and, and inform your storytelling. That is, that's just a great observation of social media being more than a mouthpiece or a loudspeaker that it's, 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 it's supposed to be social, isn't it? That's the the, the, the yeah. key is social, not just not just broadcast. It's an interactive mm-hmm. space, so it should be about listening as well. So you've kind of um, in your in your career now, you've taken that advocacy, and now you're speaking for or the, the patient's representative, I guess, in within the world. You're working for a, an ad agency now, is that right? For Real Chemistry. Yeah. So Real Chemistry is um, this incredibly innovative healthcare. Uh, healthcare agency that is, you know, most of our clients are anywhere from big pharma to small biotechs, but in the healthcare space. 
and um, helping them with marketing, communications, PR, um, social media, uh, all of those those different, you know, the, what you would expect from from an agency. But I started there uh, as part of a new offering from the agency, which is an advocacy relations practice, and the idea behind it and we're a really small team of people who are all new to the agency world but we come from um you know two of my colleagues come from uh the pharmaceutical side of things ab patient advocacy on the on the pharma side um and then of course i'm i'm coming at it from a disease focused uh disease focused nonprofit side what we're offering um, clients is strategy and and help informing the way that they interact with the patient advocacy community in the disease space that they're focused on. So for the bigger companies, they have multiple diseases and multiple um, therapies that they're that they have in the pipeline. And they want the and need the the support and um, the input, the relationships with the advocacy communities of these diseases that they're trying to develop therapies for. It can be really intimidating. I think, I think um, companies get really nervous about what advocacies, you know, what a nonprofit organization, um, what their thoughts are going to be, how they're going to um, react to pharmaceutical companies. But, you know, I know from being on the other side of those conversations, they're a, a partner. They're you know, a a, a good a good um, biotech is a great partner. One, they're helping, they're helping cure or fix whatever whatever it is that your organization is um, mission is. But also, you know, if you build the right relationship, it can really become sort of a two way conversation and a two way street. Mm. And that's what we're helping counsel clients to do. Some some clients have um, are new to a, a disease space. So we're helping them sort of introduce both the company, the 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 principles of the company, what the company stands for, as well as the the therapy that they're developing to the advocacy community. Others have maybe had a relationship in the community that's either gotten stale or needs to be revived, revived or, um, or even mended because of reputational things or, mm -hmm. or over time. And then some, some of our clients have great relationships with the advocacy organizations, but are trying to sort of take it to that next level. And, you know, we can help provide innovative thinking on that. And, Again, I spent so much time in conversations with a number of different companies that would come in and some companies were coming in and doing like we were talking about with social media. They were listening to us. They they knew that we were the experts um, because we're we're living day to day with the disease that mm. they're sort of just getting into or or working on from a very scientific um, trajectory versus the patient experience. And so we could provide a lot of information that can really help redefine the, the path that a trial, a clinical trial may take, which ultimately can, you know, hopefully lead to success. Mm. Um, and then other companies, we would spend hours talking and 
they didn't listen at all. And so I think I think our our sort of expert expert experience um, on our team helps to uh, hopefully guide these companies and also make the the partnerships less intimidating and really start to see the the mutual value of of building those relationships together. Interesting that that you know you don't mention the word story in that, but story is it, it's like it at the core, you know. Exactly. You're... Well, it's the patient story. It's yeah. right. You know, if you look at an advocacy organization as not as this like barrier to reach, reaching patients, but rather absorbing, you know, the collective patient stories. That's information that is invaluable to um, to an industry partner because that's going to help inform everything they know about the disease. And you know, one of the recommendations that we we make all the time is um, bringing patients, bringing representatives from these different organizations into companies, whether it's virtually or, or hopefully starting to be in person, around an awareness month, for example, to to share their story with the team that everyone on the team, you know, the, the researchers to the people in the warehouses who are helping, you know, package a drug or whatever, it, it helps make their investment into what the work that they're doing that much more passionate, I think. That's, that's terrific. But, um, you know, speaking about the other part of your life, um, you've not left comedy behind. Um, you may be a corporate storyteller by day, but you have an alternate persona. Could you talk a little bit about her? <laughs> yeah. So, um, <laughs> and, 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 and full disclosure, I know a lot. I, I know this persona quite well, but <laughs> she's a big fan of yours too. Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I've always sort of uh, had a, a side hustle um, since, literally since graduating college. And for a long time, you know, moving to New York and wanting to pursue theater and realizing that the best way to do that is to create your own your own work. Um, I My best friend from Atlanta, she and I moved up at the same time and we started doing sketch comedy in New York and had a blast doing it and then you know, life just sort of, it got, it, it got more and more challenging to put that together. Um, but one of the characters that I did in our show was play this 72 year old lesbian named Leola, who the joke in our sketch show was every, every show she was coming out in some outrageous way. She was newly out of the closet and was super happy about it, super full of pride. And, um, you know, each episode, if you will, was her coming out in a different way. So I had a, a milestone birthday, um, the last milestone birthday I had um, a decade <laughs> ago. I I was sort of looking for, our son had gotten to an age where I felt like, you know, not that he can raise himself, but I could start to pursue my, my, uh, my creative life a little bit more, my side hustle again. And so I developed a, a one-woman show for Leola, who is, um, again, a 72-year-old redneck uh, from Georgia who is newly out of the closet. 
and believes in Jesus, Kelly Clarkson, and the power of the casserole to help make the world <laughs> a better place. If you have a can of cream of mushroom soup and a dream, you can do anything. <laughs> and I started putting together these um, these solo shows that were essentially chapters of Leola's life, um, starting with her coming out story. Again, she, you know, her her backstory is she came out at the age of seventy. Um, had been married for 42 years and is still roommates with her ex-husband and best friend Gus. And, you know, they've, they've built this incredible life and she's exploring being a, a lesbian later in the later years. And um, each, each uh, show has been sort of a, another layer to, to her story. Um, the first one was her coming out. We explored the work of Kelly Clarkson um, in the Gospel According to Kelly Clarkson, where Leola proves undeniably that Kelly is the second coming and Jesus's younger sister. Um, We've done some more political shows where Leola was considering running for president um, back in 2016, I guess. Um, She didn't win. And... uh, (laughs) Even looked at the Me Too movement with a show called Grab Me by the Ladyland, putting the me back in Me Too that was funny and looking at, you know, some of the the more notorious sexual um, aggressors that were making headlines. But then Leola also shared her own experience. And then the most successful piece has been a show called Gay History for Straight People, where Leola tells her coming out story, but also goes through... Um, the whole alphabet to tell a very accurate um, interpretation of gay history. It's not accurate at all because most <laughs> of it's come from um, a misunderstanding of Wikipedia. But it's, um, it's of been... course, you know we've 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 um, enjoyed Leola for those members of our audience who who will understand the reference. Um, Leola has been described as imagine if Dame Edna had a hillbilly cousin doing a TED talk from the Bible Belt, um, and that's been a that's been a fun uh, <laughs> association. Yeah. yeah, it's it's been a really amazing journey with the character because I did this as a way to make my friends laugh, and you know. A lot, not all of my friends, but a lot of my friends are part of the the queer community. And what I found is that I have this audience that um, these two sort of sweet spots of older straight couples and young teens who really love the character and what she what she's I was going to say representing, but maybe misrepresenting is a better way to put it. (laughs) Um, And the stories that she's telling and. One of the things in experimenting with these different versions of the show and what I think, you know, aligns with what we've been talking about with my my professional career is I found that what resonates most with audiences is when Leola gets very specific, very detailed about the, the aspects of her life. And if I can tell a story as Leola that has, you know, those those uh those details and those that specificity that takes you there because it's not you know this is a a, essentially a one-person show 
I do have, as Susan mentioned, like there, there's a s slides that are happening during things, but it's really, the audience is really having to sort of suspend their, their disbelief and, and go on this journey with her. That's where I've had the most success with the shows is when you can really drill down and get into the details of her life. And some of the details you don't want to hear, especially in a <laughs> theater where you're trying to eat a flatbread pizza at the same time. But, um, but that's been what's, what's really resonated with the character. Um, so, so really, you know, Leola is an advocate as well. She's an educator I guess there's, I mean, that's, Absolutely. I think there's, there's something about storytelling education going hand in hand, really, isn't there? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's using, and it goes back to, you know, you're at the top of the, the top of our conversation when you were talking about what sort of took me on this journey, you know, growing up, like sitting around kitchen tables and stories being used to inform, educate, entertain, and punish, like, you know, um, <laughs> That's that sort of has been this this uh, I think this trajectory of both both of my my career paths, mm -hmm. um, both communicating on behalf of uh, the organizations that I've worked for, um, and then also in my performing. Um, Leola can say a lot of things that Will would never say. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I talked about not being a political person and not not um, you know taking a megaphone in any social media in any way to to espouse my views but leola does mm. um and gets by with a lot of things that um even in today's cancel culture um are kind of amazing <laughs> but tying it back to something you said earlier about uh, earlier about your own personal sense of responsibility what i've experienced with leola is her commitment to kindness and celebration of diversity um yeah, I mean, at you know, at on the surface, it may seem like she's just a, a equal opportunity offender, um, and there's it is also, comedy after all. It, it, yeah, and and there's also this this um, you know pop culture the way we I, look at men portraying female characters and drag is is bitchy and and. Uh, and not necessarily kind, but I think that I think of Leola less as a drag persona and more of a female character mm. who's just being played by a man, again, a la Dame Edna. Um, and essentially, she's she's not a political like or, or in terms of. Um, partisan politics she very much walks down the middle of the road because she doesn't like anybody in politics <laughs> um but it's it's again to to what you were say, saying susan it's been this way to bring it all back to what you can do her her message at the end of every show is that um making the world a better place starts with you loving everything inside yourself the good the bad the ugly and embracing that and that reflects outwardly and is a way you can you know again sort of cause this ripple effect well shameless plug um where can our audience see leola so that whole idea <laughs> of these big long stories about leola has sort of been flipped on its head and i um 
I'm doing uh, shows in New York City. Um, I have a, an ongoing residency at the Green Room 42, which is this amazing, um, edgy sort of cabaret space that uh, I'm doing a talk show version of Leola called Leola's Ladyland Lounge, where we uh, interview guests who are, some of them are upcoming artists at the Green Room. Some are Broadway stars. Some are artists who have nothing to do with um, performing, but they're artists in different ways, photographers, poets, um, stand-up preachers, what, whatever, preachers, preachers. Yep. Uh, authors. And uh, it's a good old-fashioned, like, chat show in the tradition that I grew up with, with, you know, Merv Griffin and Dinosaur and, um, but also the Carol Burnett elements and uh, Dame, Edna, Dame Edna elements in there. Um, uh yeah, so it's it's sort of a variety chat show that is live and, you know, has been open for business um, since last spring, which has been exciting to perform in front of people again, but is also streaming. So you can mm. go to leolasladyland.com and find out when we're when we're going into the Ladyland Lounge next. And now that travel is opening up, will Leola be traveling to the UK perhaps? Or? Yes. So um, <laughs> gay history for straight people is sort of my, uh, my pack up the suitcase and hit the road sort of show. I've done um, a few different fringe festivals around the country and like no joke, my dream is to do it in the UK because I think, think that there's nothing more fun than for british people than to laugh at americans i right <laughs> i mean not not to speak That's for you not but true simon laughs about me all list. the time we love and, americans uh, no, in, Ameri I know. in america <laughs> in america um no, no i just i i think the i think the character um and especially the gay history show would um mm. would be a lot of a lot of fun so i am um, keeping fingers and toes crossed that uh, something will happen soon. It's having seen it online, it's the kind of thing that would go down very well in places like the Soho Theatre, where it's a slightly slightly more avant-garde and edgy kind of um, uh, comedy comedy scene. It's, it's great. And they our, have our, you know, places in the yeah. Or at Buckingham. Our audience. I mean, I'm good with either. <laughs> Winter <laughs> Castle, something like that. Yeah. Our, our audience cannot see the three of us that you can only hear us but the three of us are grinning from ear to ear <laughs> you know over the prospect of getting leola a passport <laughs> i'm just saying fine i think we we could carry on talking as is always the case with our guests for for a very long time but i, I think you know uh, we'd like to wrap things up with the way we always wrap things up which is asking our guests if they have um a favorite story um I know you've got lots of different experiences. I wonder whether the story you want to share is a poignant one or one that will make us laugh. So that'd be interesting. What's your favorite story? Um, so I, I do have quite, quite a few to pull from. And I was asking, actually asking my son his advice, but um, most of those are way too X-rated to share on this. <laughs> And they're also what I sell tickets to via Leola. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so I was never, I've never been a journal person or a diary person, but I did go through a time in, I think it was fifth grade 
where I decided I was going to keep a diary and um, stumbled across it a number of years ago and have actually shared uh, the story that, that I thought I'd tell you. Um, I've actually shared it in front of audiences in this amazing, um, and, and some of your listeners may get a kick out of this. It's called Mortified. Oh, and s- it's, it's so funny. I've seen it. It's just <laughs> amazing. It's, it's on people, Netflix. There's a, there's a thing on Netflix. There's, it, there's so. uh, yeah, there's, there's something on Netflix. Um, and I was in the very, f- well, the s- very second, <laughs> the, the second um, Mortified show ever oh, um, wow. when we lived in L.A. And it's people, um, some are comedians, actors, performers, um, and s- also regular folks reading from their diaries out loud to an audience. Um, and... So the the entry that I discovered that I've I've shared uh, via Mortified um, is this time I was not a. It wasn't that I was unpopular, but I was definitely a nerd, and uh, I had um, and this was in the eighties. So I had the big sort of Charles Nelson Riley tortoise shell glasses that also matched my mom's, and. Um, <laughs> I was the kind of kid that bullies didn't pick on, but the kids that bullies picked on picked on me um, <laughs> because I was I was such a geek. And, uh, you know, I would come home and just slam my bedroom door shut and blast my Amy Grant music and just write in this journal. And like a good, you know, angst-ridden teenager who also loves Jesus does in the South. So... Um, so there was this day where I was having, I guess, what they call a play date now, but with a, a kid named, we'll just call him Drake, because um, that was his name, <laughs> but I, I won't do the last name. But Drake and I were playing, we were climbing in trees. And so he, I climbed up in the tree, he j- jumped out of the tree, tied my shoes to the trunk of the tree, and went home and left me there. <gasps> oh. So like... I can't, I'm tied to the tree. I can't get out. Um, 15, 20 minutes, maybe it was five minutes. I don't know, but it seemed like an eternity. (laughs) I finally get out of the tree. I fall into a puddle. I go storming into the house and I'm like sobbing. And my mom was like, what happened? What happened? I was like, Drake tied me to a tree and he took my shoes and I fell in a puddle and he's a fucker. (laughs) And she... She, like, had, like, big eyes, but she knew it was, you know, there are those times when your kid uses a word that Mm. it's, like, it's not going to be about using the word. It's going to be about what's gotten them to this point. And I was such a good kid, I never used that kind of language. And um, she told me, so she was in group therapy at the time um, to better express herself to my dad. Um, But they would do it in the garage so that we wouldn't see them expressing themselves with each other. And so she told me that I needed to talk about my feelings to Drake and that I needed to call him and tell him how he made me feel. And I said, no. And then I used the worst curse word I had ever heard, (laughs) which was, he's a motherfucking ass shithole. (laughs) Or as my sister and I would say, a mother beep, 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 beep hole. And she was like, you're calling him or you're punished. So I go up to my room. I get my, you know, phone because they were plugged into walls at the time. 
and I dial, you know, Drake and I was like, Drake, it's Will. He's like, what? And I said, you really hurt my feelings when you tied me to the tree and took my shoes. And he laughed (laughs) and hung up the phone. (laughs) And I went downstairs and I told my mom, I was like, I told Drake and he laughed and he hung up the phone and she said, well, it's time for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) And that was it. Oh, dear. (laughs) So... I think that's why I do Leola because she's my <laughs> armor from that kid who is still in here. Believe me. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Yeah. Well, I think you need a hug. <laughs> <clears throat> no, I swear I've gotten past it. Okay. <laughs> I just avoid trees and sh- shoes with laces, <laughs> and I'm fine. I- I hadn't noticed, but now that I think of it, those platform shoes that Leola wears, they're They're buckles. Yeah, they're buckles. (laughs) Well, thank you so very, very much. We we enjoyed this immensely, and uh, I'm sure our listening audience is furiously, frantically, you know, searching the internet for Leola. And uh, and we encourage them to do so. Um, no, thank you, thank you so much for having me, and thank you all for doing this. It's I think it's such a great it's such a great and needed um, podcast because it's I think the best way we we learn as communicators and as storytellers is from each other and our experiences and what's worked and what hasn't worked. So thank you all for this well, platform. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Right. <laughs> Terrific. It was um, a pleasure. <laughs> oh wow. Yes. Um Where to start? What what can yeah. we what can we pull out from Will's wonderful brain in our conversation? Well, I mean, it he said it early on in the conversation and it didn't necessarily hammer down on it, but it it resonated with me and that's the idea of being character driven mm. and i i think we often think about character driven related to plays and musicals and books and mm. and story you know stories in the like short story definition but actually when you think about it his work as a patient advocate has been character driven. I mean, the, mm. the patient is yeah. the character. Yeah. But if I take that a step further, for most of our listeners, brands really would do well to to be character driven. Yeah. But to know the, the character. Yeah, I, mean, um, I guess that quite a lot of brands work with personas, but yes. those personas tend to be. I think maybe a little flat, a little bit two dimensional. They're not. Yes. They're not. They're not um, detailed enough. They're not rich enough in terms of character. Um, right. They. The. You know. What's the backstory yeah. of a prospect? You know what. That 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 to me was uh, my. You know, uh, tiny takeaway in terms of that that one phrase. Yeah, and it's it's similar to to perhaps my first one in that that. You know, I think we've had this discussion on the podcast before that um, 
businesses are very comfortable in the generic they're not comfortable in the specific so mm -hmm. related to character getting specific is actually something that would be really beneficial and you know it's he made us say or attempt to say specificity, specificity. <laughs> which i'm not very good at <laughs> well yeah and 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 the the, the fact that specificity requires that you listen really hard yeah and the the way that they did that with the facebook ads and i love that you know targeting a specific ad a specific audience both to speak to and to listen to and knowing that other stakeholders will come in line if you if you speak to um if you speak too broadly you're speaking to no one i think that's a really right. important point with us with a story or with any kind of business messaging if you're if you're being too broad you're just it's just not landing mm. Right, and not to get too specific, but mm -hmm. oftentimes our clients are selling services or tools or software where there's a decision maker, but mm. there's also a user. Yeah. And if you're not speak, if you speak with, I'm going to try it again, specificity <laughs> to the user, right? Yeah. The person who's going to benefit from the tool or the service, the decision maker is going to come along. So that's a great takeaway for me. Yeah, absolutely. I might, there were a bunch of things that to, for me tied together. I, I loved when Will described the most successful nonprofits being a group of passionate people who are striving mm. towards a singular mission. And I, yeah, we've done so much work mm. around, you know, mission, vision, purpose, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Isn't that what all companies want to be, passionate people? Yeah. and Surrounded. And I think, you know, is there a story that unites all of that stuff? Yes. Is there, yes. A, is there a thread that connects it all? Because I think often that's the thing that's missing. It's great to have all these separate parts, but what is the galvanizing that, story? That holds these passionate mm. people together, striving towards one singular, singular mission. And it, it, the other thing that, Will talked about was this admonition at Real Chemistry, the ad agency where mm. he um, functions as the voice of the patient, that they admonish their clients during an awareness month, you know, for a particular mode of treatment or yeah. drug to bring in someone representing that patient yeah. into the company and even into the warehouse and into the admin group <clears throat> so that everybody sees the, the, the character yeah. for whom their work is having a real impact. Everybody, not just the marketers and not just the, the C-suite, but that everybody sees purpose in what they're doing day in, day out. Yeah. Because I mean, so, they really feel the persona of the I mean, it's the so connected, character. isn't it? That, that yeah. if the story that galvanizes an organization has to be connected to the customer. And the further away you get from the customer's story and the customer's journey, I think that's when businesses fall into real trouble because they lose sight of what's important. Right. Everybody needs to understand the story. You know, the finance people, the the, the logistics people, the you know the people in the the factory mm. everybody needs to tell that be able to understand and tell that story and we've seen that 
I mean, we've heard that, I should say, yeah. in many of the other conversations yeah, yeah, that absolutely. we've had. So, um, um, I, I think, you know, there's, there's so much we've, we've got out of that conversation. It's only fair that we should give a little back to the person that gave us that conversation because Will is, is, is available to all of us <laughs> as Leola. Yes. As Leola, and and he mentioned it, um, but Leola does have a residency at the Green Room Forty Two Cabaret. Um, he actually, she actually has a uh, Ladyland Lounge coming up on Thursday, April twenty eighth. So if you go to leolasladyland.com, dot com, you can see the schedule. You can sign up for tickets. Um, live tickets if you happen to be in New York, but streaming tickets um, as well. And uh, yeah, you, Leola must be seen uh, <laughs> to, <laughs> to be, be truly appreciated. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. Um, go Leola. Fantastic. Well, uh, it's been another great conversation. We're so glad that you could join us. Um, yeah. Just a little bit more about us as your producers. Um Story Conversations is produced by Griffin and Skeggs Collaborative and Iambic Creative. We help both separately and together clients shape their stories, uh, craft their stories through marketing communications and great content. Anything you want to add to that before I close us off, Susan? Just anybody who's interested in, in hearing more about how narrative story and storytelling can grow, help grow your brand, please reach out. Yeah, or if you've got a way that you use stories and you'd like to come on the podcast, get in touch and uh, maybe we'll have you on the show. That would be great. See you next time. Bye.